0: Uh, thank you, Sai. Uh, Gary has a real job, uh, and unlike uh, unlike us academics, uh, and uh, you know the problem with clients is you actually have to satisfy them, uh, and and tribunals you have to stick to their schedule. Uh, so, what? Hello. Okay. Uh, better now. Better. Okay. Sorry. Uh, So since Gary can't be here, uh, I think I'm the only one in the room who's read the two very lengthy papers on which uh, his brief uh, thought paper um, is based. And I, I wanted just very quickly to summarize his position, in part because I think it's my intuition at least is the three of us here don't agree with it. And rather than leave him completely undefended and exposed, I I wanted to at least sketch out uh, his position. Uh, And uh, so I'll do so. Uh, First of all, I I think it's fair to say that Gary's uh, argument is not at all originalist. Uh, He is speaking as both a scholar and a practitioner who is actively engaged in this field, particularly international civil litigation. Uh, so, his, his focus is as much on private international law and procedural rules that affect foreign issues as the difficult topic of bringing international law into the domestic court system. Uh, and he believes that uh, the United States should have uniform rules as to issues that affect international relations uh, for functional reasons to make us a better partner and to promote uh, the U.S. role in international dispute resolution including private civil litigation. Uh, And he thinks the best pathway to that in default of action by Congress through uh, either uh, endorsing a treaty or adopting legislation is for the federal courts to take the lead in developing a... (laughs) Uh, federal common law that governs not just the implementation of international law, but also rules that affect international uh, disputes and particularly uh, civil litigation. Uh, he, uh, on the issue of bringing uh, international law in domestically, I don't think he has taken a position on RUDs. So I don't think he embraces the Hankin position, uh, the uh, Juan Torreya position that uh, RUDs are unconstitutional. So he accepts that limitation on treaties coming in. And on customary international law, uh, his position is that it should come in, but only real customary international law. I mean, that's my word, not his, but you know, uh, clearly established customary international law. And he's a skeptic as to whether human uh, rights law has attained that status. He would see, uh, I think, human rights law as conventional, and the conventions on which it's based are by U.S. choice non-self executing. Uh, so, th- which I don't think he has a problem with. So he would cabin exactly that which motivated Hankin uh, in his work and particularly the third statement. Uh, on the other hand, he thinks that uh, international civilization has to be international <laughs> litigation. It's a civilizing force and uh, needs to be rationalized and the federal courts are the way to do it. Um, and that segues to my piece, uh, which is part of, a I think, Mm -hmm. a career-long skepticism about the capacity of courts to do things. Um, And uh, in particular, it is a non-originalist instrumental response to the one-voice argument, which I think Gary articulates rather fully. Um, And and just to summarize very quickly, I, I hope the paper speaks for itself and, Uh, either persuades you or it doesn't on its own terms, but uh, uh, I I see two instrumentalist objections to the vision that Gary has and uh, that I think uh, on different substantive grounds, the third restatement expressed. One is I don't think the federal judiciary is a well-oiled, smooth machine. There are many reasons for that, Um, and one can feel differently about the role of Supreme Court leadership. Uh, We certainly had some people in our advisors meetings, I won't identify them other than to say former deans of Yale Law School, uh, who (laughs) believe that, uh, you know, uh, that we should disregard Supreme Court precedent when it makes no sense and look to uh, that practice in the federal judiciary that seems normatively preferable. If that's not your view, then I think it's very hard to look at the current state of affairs in the federal judiciary, where I think there, one can fairly say, there's tension between the Supreme Court and um, some of the lower courts. And the Supreme Court, the tension is great enough that the Supreme Court, I believe, is responding prophylactically with rules that are. Uh, based on a suspicion about how the lower courts will behave, which I think explains a general drift in the direction of rules rather than standards, and allergy to facts and circumstances and balancing, um, quite different from what we saw back in the 70s, I think. Uh, and, and uh, Particularly in the a- area of foreign relations, I think this means we have Uh, uh, a dynamic between the lower courts and the Supreme Court that makes it unlikely that we're going to get coherent functional uniform rules. It is, uh, if you forgive me, a dialectical process and and, uh, until the dialectic is resolved, which I don't think it will be, we're not going to get the kind of clear guidance from the federal courts that Uh, is necessary to satisfy the conditions of the one view perspective. and On the other hand, with respect to the states, uh, I think concerns about state behavior that were so widespread in the 60s and 70s, largely I think because of the the civil rights movement and the defalcations of the states on civil rights, I, I think not that things are, are wonderful, but I think we're past some of those concerns. And at least in the world of international transactions and international relations, the states, through the uniform law process uh, processes, uh, have been stepping up to the plate. And even when they're not adopting uniform laws uh, that are the product of the Uniform Laws Commission, they're not, as far as I can tell, adopting predatory laws that are are designed to extract rent from international transactions. At least not that much. So that the current dynamic where Congress responds, uh, the national government responds, when the problem is most urgent, and when it does, that is the governing law. See the New York Convention on Arbitration. you know, uh, accompanied by state law filling in uh, where Congress has an act, see the enforcement of foreign judgments uh, seems to be working reasonably well. And, and, and so federalizing that body of law, some commentators, not just Gary uh, would like, or at least having strong um, preemption policing of things like recognition of foreign judgments Judgments, which was suggested in the Third Restatement, seems to me unnecessary. Thank you.
1: All right. So John will be next, and uh, Beth has asked that people speak directly into the microphone. Of course, John and I were also back in the corner, and we had a hard time hearing people as well. So, uh, John, shout.
2: Well, should I, if I shout into the microphone, so that might, I, it, I'm now trying to. S- is it working? Okay, I'm not trying to just speak into the microphone, but not yell into the into the microphone. Hmm. So, what's the better solution? Just just well what is 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 it sounds like it's being amplified now. Is that okay? I I I'll try in a conversational tone rather than yelling. And it's interesting to hear what Paul just said both about Gary Borns contribution and about his own thoughts. It's it's good to hear that somebody after all this work as one of the co-reporters of the restatement has the position, don't worry, be happy. That That is, uh, Paul suggests the the pro- the problem that both Gary Bourne and I have something to say about the need for uniform and impartial interpretation and application of uh, international law in U.S. courts isn't really that much of a problem these days. Maybe it was when the third restatement was being drafted, but now the difficulties have to some extent at least receded, and that, that may well be true. And so it may well be that the problem I'm gonna say something about the solution to is not that much of a problem, and, and if so, we should all be grateful uh, that, things have, that, things are, that things are like this, and, and what I'm talking about is a relatively minor issue, and that what Gary Bourne is talking about is a relatively minor issue. But the, the issue is, to the extent that it is important and desirable, to have the uniform, impartial, and reasonably expert, I say reasonably expert. we are talking about American courts that don't often have as much experience in these issues as it would be useful for them to be had for, for them to have. Is it, is it possible to have those good things within, and this is where I'm going to differ from Gary Bourne and my contribution, within what I think are the constraints the Constitution imposes. And those constraints begin with the principle, I think, which the Supreme Court rejects, but I, but I also think in practice has rejected only to a limited extent, the principle that the only laws of the United States for the purposes of Article Three and Article VI, that is to say federal jurisdiction and preemption, are acts of Congress. That unwritten law, although it has a place in the American legal system and has a place in the federal courts, is not law of the United States for those two purposes. And that's a very important point on which Gary Bourne and I, the part company, I also think, and I think these principles are less important, but they're significant, that there isn't a general principle that the states can't legislate on matters that affect the foreign relations of the United States. There are some more specific principles along those lines, and there is not a general federal congressional power with respect to the foreign relations of the United States. There are lots of Congressional powers that bear on the foreign relations of the United States, as I suggest in this this, uh, short paper. There certainly are aspects of the necessary and proper power that interact with other features of the Constitution to give Congress authority, so I don't want to say that there is none, but I do reject the suggestion that there is just, as a general matter, a foreign relations legislative power in Congress. So within those constraints, if one were to accept them and the, the courts were to, as I think, return to them, is it possible to achieve the goal that, again, Paul is telling us don't worry about all that much? And my answer is, to a substantial extent, it is possible that the federal courts themselves can do that to a significant degree, that they could reasonably ask for and under, the, under current circumstances might obtain a substantial amount of cooperation from the state courts that the approach that I have I have in mind and that I discussed just a little bit is, I think, the one that is implicit in the Constitution itself and that to the extent people thought about this at the time of the framing, and they often did think about it at the time of the framing, is the one that the framers and those who participated in that process had in mind. That is to say, an arrangement in which the function we're talking about, the uniform and impartial application of international law in U.S. courts, is implemented through, first, the jurisdiction of the federal courts, and the Article III jurisdiction, and to some extent, Congress's implementation of the Article III jurisdiction, clearly have in mind a lot of cases that have, in a foreign relations international law aspect to them, most notably, diversity cases, and admiralty cases; those aren't the those aren't the exclusive examples. And foreign officer cases, which make it into the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, Article Three was designed to get a lot of these cases into federal court. And as I say, I think that is the primary way in which the Constitution is itself is designed to achieve this goal. What would the courts today need to do in order to move in that direction? the main thing they would have to do would be independently, and that means independently of the state courts, independently to determine the content of international law when international law, by whatever criteria are used to determine when international law should apply, and in in doing so, let, let let me talk in particular about one kind of international law that is especially important and especially interesting, in this, in this area and for what, I, for what I'm talking about. In doing that, a particular piece of international law has a very important function and that's choice of law. And choice of law and the approach that I'm suggesting the federal courts could take to substantially achieve this goal, not 100%, but substantially achieve the goal. Choice of law functions in two ways. First, excuse me, the, it is a choice of law question, actually make that three ways. It is a choice of law question when international law, as opposed to the domestic law of the United States, either of a state or of the United States, governs a question. That is itself a question of choice of law. My suggestion is that if the federal courts independently determine choice of law questions, they can independently determine when something is governed by international law. Second, and this may be the most aggressive thing that I'm, uh, that I'm suggesting. Second, because choice of law principles allocate jurisdiction among sovereigns, choice of law principles often perform the same function that in the US federal system preemption performs. That is to say, preemption can cause state law not to operate in an area, either be, either through constitutional preemption or just through the exercise of some congressional authority that then displaces the state law. Well, as is often said, Article VI and the Supremacy Clause to some extent is a choice of law principle, excluding state law under certain circumstances. Ordinary non-Article VI choice of law principles can do the, sa- can do the same thing. Now, one thing about the choice of law principles uh, that I have in, that I have in mind is that, and I'll elaborate on this in just, in just a moment, they would be distinctively federal in the sense that only the federal courts would be obliged to follow them. That's a consequence of saying that no unwritten law is law of the United States for purposes of Article 6. I don't think that's a problem. It's certainly not a problem when the federal courts are operating within their own jurisdiction. The third way, so the, se- the second way was to exclude sometimes Law of the states, including as I, as I say in the in the, in the, that little draft, including state statutes and cause federal courts to follow international law rather than a state statute that purports to operate on it. the third way in which a choice of law would enter into what I'm suggesting is well choice choice of law, law choice of law itself frequently is the kind of international law, the non-application of which by state courts can give rise to foreign relations problems for the United States. And so the most, the, the most substantial change, I think, in what I'm suggesting, and I'm by no means the only federal court scholar who is not persuaded by the claim that Claxon against Stentor, which has the federal courts look to state court decisions with respect to choice of law, the Claxon against Stentor is A, not required by the Constitution, and B, idiotic and as a consequence, yes, there are good reasons for the federal courts to depart from it. And so the third part would be, yes, just independent federal choice of law rules, which is almost certainly uh, something that the, that the framers had in mind. Claxton, I think, is a, ma- is a major departure, if not from uh, the content of the Constitution, certainly a major departure from the way the system was expected to operate at the time of the framing. Put together, all of those things would have a very large role for the federal courts as to the kind of issues uh, that Gary Bourne and a lot of other people are worried about that Paul is telling us not to worry about so much. One One other piece of my suggestion is that the Supreme Court of the United States should ask the state courts, ask them to cooperate and to follow the lead of the Supreme Court when it independently interprets international law, including independently interpreting Principles of choice of law, rule, uh, choice of law, especially insofar as they apply with respect to the international relations of the of the United States. the last the last thing I'll say since uh, choice of law figures significantly in what i'm what I'm suggesting, is how since since I have said there is no unwritten law of the United States that is law of the United States for purposes of either Article Three or Article Six, what is the status of the choice of law principles that I'm talking about, given that they are not found in any federal statute? And the answer is they are a particular form of federal common law. They are not the form of federal common law that Gary Bourne wants to rely on, that I say the Constitution doesn't contemplate, unwritten principles that override the law of the state. They also aren't exactly the federal kind of federal common law that the Supreme Court used during what's called the Swift era, when it independently looked to, say, the, the, the commercial law, the law merchant, deter- both, both pointed to it with the choice of law rule, possibly, but in any event independently determined its content, because choice of law rules themselves do not directly apply to private people. They're not primary rules. They're secondary rules telling the courts what to do about possibly conflicting of primary rules. Rather, choice of law rules are, I think, the kind of federal common law that is least problematic because they are rules about the internal decision-making processes of the federal courts. And to say that those rules can be independently determined by the federal courts requires only, not preemption in the ordinary sense, it requires only the McCulloch principle that the operations of the national government are not themselves subject to state law. And because choice of law rules are about the operations of the national government, they're about the decision-making process of the federal courts, they are a form of federal common law. They are not written. Their content would be independently determined. By the federal courts, and yet I think they are not at all constitutionally objectionable, but rather quite consistent with the Constitution, uh, both both as drafted and, luckily enough, as in in this case, as implemented by the Supreme Court.
1: AJ is next.
3: All right. Well, for starters, can you hear me okay in the back? Um, I'd like to, you know, thank Paul for hosting um, this conference for including me in the discussion and also add a word of thanks to those who worked so hard on the restatement. Um, it's an enormous project and uh, as far as it's been completed so far, um, a real success, so thanks to all. Um, so on the topic of, of this panel, uh, international law and the judiciary, I'd like to just offer a few thoughts on the charming Betsy Cannon, um, which I think properly belongs uh, in a panel like this. This will certainly be much more of a discussion starter than a discussion um, concluder. You know, the the charming Betsy canon, you know, may be easy to restate in general terms, uh, but it's very difficult to define, I think, in scope, as its justification has long been disputed. So in these few minutes, I'd like to offer a justification that supports certain uses of the canon, uh, but also suggests that the canon may require different justifications to support its use in other contexts. The canon, of course, takes its name from the 1804 case, The Charming Betsy, you're all very familiar with it, in which Chief Justice Marshall wrote that it has, quote, been observed that an act of Congress ought never to be construed to violate the law of nations if any other possible construction remains. Both the Restatement 2nd and the Restatement 3rd of Foreign Relations included some formulation of this canon under the restatement third, quote, where fairly possible, a United States statute is to be construed so as not to conflict with international law or with an international agreement of the United States. So to my mind, the question whether and the extent to which judicial application of the canon is justified is an important one. Uh, dozens of Court of Appeals decisions have cited, used, or discussed the canon in the past 20 years, and the Supreme Court has invoked the canon on numerous occasions uh, during the 20th century. But what justifies judicial application of the canon has long been open for discussion. And you know, Kurt has done great work in sort of separating out Uh, different justifications for the canon and, you know, attempting to prioritize them a bit. You know, one justification for the canon is based on legislative intent. Is the canon a necessary and appropriate means for courts to implement legislative intent insofar as Congress generally intends its acts to accord with international law? Another justification is based on the need to enforce uh, in the courts of the United States, international law itself, to enforce international law per se. Is the canon a necessary and appropriate means for courts to ensure that international law is properly enforced and implemented in litigation in US courts? Third justification is rooted in separation of powers. Is the canon a necessary and appropriate means for courts to uphold the separation of powers that the Constitution establishes between the political branches and the courts? Violations of international law generate conflict. They generate friction with other nations. So is the canon a means for courts to avoid such conflict and friction when the political branches have not clearly taken an act to generate it? In discussing the canon, in justifying the canon, historical understandings and practice have played an important role, uh, just as they've played an important role with respect to other disputed questions regarding um, international law and the domestic judicial system. You know, whether one's taking this from the perspective of an originalist or a non-originalist, historical practice and understandings have been been significant in, in the analyses. It's been been a challenge, however, I think, um, to accept or reject or prioritize different justifications for the canon on the basis of historical understandings and practice. Um, In part because given the nature and scope of the Law of Nations as it existed in the decades following ratification, courts applied the canon without controversy and thus without a whole lot of discussion of why they were applying it. Although the 1804 case, the Charming Betsy, stated the principle in a more direct way perhaps than other cases, the principle didn't originate Mm -hmm. in that case. The Charming Betsy case no more created the Charming Betsy canon than, say, Swift versus Tyson created the so-called Swift doctrine. other cases preceding the Charming Betsy, like Talbot versus Seaman, articulated the canon in fairly concrete terms. Uh, and other cases relied on the principle, even if they didn't articulate it as clearly as the Charming Betsy, like um, the Schooner Exchange. Um, I guess one question is you know, in these cases, why do we not see, as we attempt to glean? Um, the wisdom of historical understanding and practice, the relevance of historical understanding and practice, why don't we see full-throated justifications for the canon in early cases that either recited it or applied it? And you know, I, think, I think there's a number of reasons um, for that. You know, One is you know, judicial application of the law of nations as it existed in the first decades following ratification was simply not controversial in the way that it was today. We, we can debate whether the law of nations operated as a form of supreme federal law, but I think there tends to be general agreement that at least, at least it operated as a rule of decision, as a form of general law. So judicial applications of the law of nations as general law upheld the powers of the political branches over war and foreign relations, just as it upheld crown prerogatives over such matters in England. Courts were not going to violate the law of nations and embroil their nation in foreign conflict against the will of the crown in England or the political branches in the United States. Indeed, the Constitution itself was well designed to enable courts to uphold international obligations of the United States, absent contrary direction from the political branches. You know, moreover, the charming Betsy canon accorded with more more general interpretive rules of the time, some of them derived from the common law, some of them derived from the law of nations themselves, as as Vittel explained. In that world, there was perhaps less need to justify the canon as enforcing separation of powers as implementing international law per se, or as upholding legislative intent. They all sort of operated together, um, at least on my understanding of the history. So what happened to generate our discussions and debates about whether and how the canon should apply today? Several things, but perhaps most significantly, The law of nations developed over time to govern relations between a nation and its own citizens in ways that it hadn't operated to govern them before. So judicial application of this new kind of customary international law developing in the 20th century, unlike the traditional law of nations, would not unqualifiedly uphold powers of the political branches. Instead, it could stand in tension with them and with the reserve powers of the states, at least as courts have understood those powers and continue to understand them. So in light of these observations about historical practice understanding, I'd like to offer a justification for at least certain judicial uses of the charming Betsy canon today. To the extent that the canon is used to avoid violations of traditional rights of sovereign nations under the law of nations, its use finds a strong justification in the constitutional structure and historical practice. In articles in a book that Brad Clark and I published last year, we've argued that the Constitution historically interacted with different branches of the law of nations in, in different ways. We've argued that specific provisions of the Constitution required courts to uphold the rights of foreign nations under the law of nations, including neutral rights, including rights to territorial sovereignty, lest courts usurp the powers of the political branches to declare and make war or to recognize foreign nations. At the time of the founding, violation of such rights would have given the offended nation just cause for war. So consistent with this obligation, the charming Betsy Cannon reflected something of a clear statement requirement to ensure that the political branches, rather than courts on their own, made the crucial decision to risk hostilities by violating the rights of foreign nations. Today, the charming Betsy Cannon, I think, continues to serve the same allocation of powers function when applied to uphold traditional rights of recognized foreign nations, such as head of state immunity. Although judicial violations of such rights no longer give an offended nation just cause for war, they may contradict recognition, at least as the court has described it most recently in Zivotovsky, and could undermine the conduct of foreign relations with other nations. Thus, I think the court's continued use of the canon in this context remains justified by the Constitution's allocation of powers. That same justification may not apply to the court's use of the charming Betsy canon to avoid violations of newer kinds of international law. For example, judicial application of the canon to avoid US violations of norms of international law that restrict the United States treatment of its own citizens and its own territory is not necessary to uphold specific constitutional powers of the political branches. To the contrary, it might conflict with them or with the reserve powers of the states. Again, at least as the court has understood those powers. Um, So in thinking about how to restate the charming Betsy Cannon in the future, including in a meaningful way the scope of its application, a good starting point might be something like this. The Constitution's allocation to the political branches of powers over war and foreign relations, including the power to recognize other nations and the rights that they enjoy as such, supports application of the charming Betsy canon to avoid violations of other nations' rights under customary international law and probably, in proper measure, international agreements as well. Other applications of the canon, however, may require a different justification if they are to be justified at all. Application of the canon say to avoid violations of newer forms of customary international law, those that create, right, that create rights in citizens against their own governments, would require a different justification insofar as the application of newer forms may stand in tension with the Constitution's allocation of powers, unlike the traditional rights, um, which stood in contemplation of the original constitutional design. So for these reasons, I suppose I'm skeptical that judicial application of the canon to all rules of customary international law can be justified in the same way. Different applications may require a different justification.
1: Well, terrific. Um, we've got a healthy few, and I'm going to read off the names. Uh, Please raise your hand again. I've got G. day Bill Dodge, George Rutherglen, Ed Swain, Kurt Bradley, Gene Galbraith, Sam Stryker, Tom Lee, and then myself. Am I missing anybody? So I think. The way we should proceed is, thank you, we should proceed I think with three questions and then we'll allow the panelists to answer the questions and we'll go to the next set of three questions. So, Gday uh, Bill, and George. Oh, okay, well that, that was an easy question then. Uh, we're gonna go to Bill, George, and then Ed.
4: Thank you. Um, so I have two comments. One is for AJ, and then one is for the rest of you all. Um, so AJ, I think, as you note, um, the, the Charming Betsy presumption didn't uh, originate with the Charming Betsy case, and that's absolutely right. And in most of the early cases, you don't get an explanation of why it exists. But in one of the early cases you do, and that, that's Rutgers versus Waddington um, in 1784, which is a New York State case. Argued by Alexander Hamilton and decided by Mayor James Duane. Today, by the way. Oh. I wish he were with us. <laughs> um. <laughs> Not well. Uh, and and in that case, um, the opinion uh, Duane's opinion in Rutgers versus Waddington does explain, uh, does articulate a charming Betsy presumption. And it explains where it comes from. And in his mind, it uh, flows from uh, two traditional English legal principles. One is avoiding absurd results, which is a kind of legislative intent rationale. And the other is the presumption against implied repeals based on the fact that um, the law of nations was considered part of the common law and that if the legislature violated it, it would be impliedly repealing that law. What you don't see is any separation of powers um, rationale there, um, so I think as an original matter, I think it's hard to say that separation of powers was the reason for the Charming Betsy canon. That's not to say it's not the best explanation of it today. I mean, I think what it is today and how should it be be restated is a different question, and we don't have to adhere to the original understanding. Um, I would add that you know, to the extent that we're talking about implied repeals and the sort of Blackstonian notion of the law of nations as part of uh, the general common law. Um, Blackstone didn't distinguish between these different branches of the law of nations uh, that you and Brad distinguish. The law of, um, you know, maritime law and the law merchant was equally considered to be part of the general uh, common law along with the law of state-state relations. So Turning then to um, my, my comment for others and the sort of federalization of international law, um, federalizing, I, I tend to come down, I think, maybe surprisingly closer to Paul than Gary in this area. Um, you know, Federalizing uh, this law might be a good idea in some areas. The question is, who's best positioned to do it? And it's not clear to me that federal courts are in a better position to create federal law here than Congress is. And I tend to agree with Paul that we're muddling along um, pretty well here. I would add, just as a comment for John, that that Rutgers versus Waddington is also relevant to his Article 6 question. Because one of the things that Hamilton argued and Duane agreed with was that um, it's sort of inherent in the nature of a federal union that states have to obey um, the law of nations. And this was a case that was decided before we had a constitution and before we had a supremacy clause. So I think one could make a kind of Charles Black structure of the constitution, structure of the federal union argument for why um, customary international law is entitled to supremacy, even if it's not mentioned in Article VI, in the text of Article Six. And I'll stop
5: there. George.
6: Um, i have going to resist the temptation to take up
7: John's views about Admiralty <clears throat> Law, uh, which I teach, uh, and instead talk about how much he's committed to uh, a coherent vision of choice of law. And, and you know, I, I subscribe to the view that there is a severe absence of consensus in American choice of law. I know that it, some people think there's just the myth of mess. But if you look at, you know, how the Supreme Court has decided questions under the Erie doctrine, I think the course of decisions in the last decade or two is severely erratic. And that court is pretty well advised on issues of you know, current thinking on separation of powers and current thinking on the difference between procedure and substance. And yet, their decisions, even after the fact, are very hard to predict. And one hesitates to think what would happen under John's regime where choice of law would take over uh, as an organizing principle differing between federal courts and state courts And I think we would then end up with a cacophony that Paul Stephen I think uh, rightly, has uh, many qualms about. So my concern is that such an emphasis on choice of law presupposes a consensus that I believe no longer exists. And secondly, leads to a lot of ex-post manipulation and litigation in order to obtain a favorable result for one's
8: client. Kurt's next. Um, a couple of is this on you? a couple of minor comments, and then I'm gonna try to channel a little Gary Bourne because he's not here, and, and since I agree with most of the panelists, I think we need to push just for good discussion. Um, so uh, John, um, you already, I'm sure know this, but before she became a judge, Amy Barrett wrote an article, a good one on procedural federal common law. And I think what you're talking about may fit pretty well. and, and as you suggest, she writes that it is less uh, controversial in many ways than the kind of federal common law we often think about as a preemptive body in terms of the modern uh, doctrine in federal court. So it, that would link nicely, I think. Um, A.J., I mean, it's always seemed to me um, that a separation of powers explanation could be a little bit more general, that it's, it's designed to keep us out of unintended violations of our international commitments and obligations. It's the sovereign prerogative of the Congress and the President to decide whether to be a breaching. Uh, nation, and that the court shouldn't be the ones accidentally to do it for us. And that would not have to distinguish among whether this is a certain type of international law commitment or obligation versus another, which might be quite difficult for courts to figure out anyhow. And related to that, I wonder what you would say about Charming Betsy as applied to treaties, human rights treaties, that are not self-executing. Because, and if you would somehow allow Charming Betsy for that, it's hard for me to figure out exactly why other than, again, we have, a, we have an obligation that would be uh, triggered if we violate it. And uh, the courts uh, may want to not be the ones to put that into motion and leave it to the suburban prerogatives of the political branch. So it seemed like there could be a broader story that would not have to fine tune all these uh, types of international law. So my effort to channel Gary Bourne, the only case maybe in American history in which a court has uh, taken customary international law and directly preempted state law is the case in the late 1960s in New York State Court, and before we had joined treaties on this, uh, there were norms against taxing diplomatic property, customary international law norms. We later joined a treaty that deals with it. Uh, Let's suppose New York goes after and tries to assess property tax on the diplomatic premises, (coughs) and is threatening levying attachments or things like that. They challenge it in the New York courts as this happened, and uh, let's suppose, contrary to fact, uh, the New York courts say, it may well violate customary norms, but that's not, that's not our business, and we want our money. Uh, what, if anything, happens at that point? Uh, do we just, I'm, I'd be interested in your thoughts, because that, that, that's the best case on the Gary Bourne worry about states doing strange things and needing more than procedural
1: federal common law, I think. <laughs> it's time for the panelists to answer the questions, and I don't know if there's a natural way of deciding who should go first. Sure. A.J., by all means. Yeah,
3: I'm happy to start. Um, uh, and I'll start, you know, with, um, with Kurt. Um, two, good, two good comments. Um, you know, I think as I started thinking about this, and again, you know, intending this sort of more as a discussion starter than as a discussion ender, I um, was trying to think about, um, you know, what, what is it uh, as a matter of separation of powers that perhaps we can all agree on, thinking about you know sort of a more text- based separation of powers that I've articulated versus a more sort of general separation of powers understanding. And along the lines of a more sort of textual based war um, recognition understanding, you know you pull in those aspects of the law of nations that generate really no conflict between courts and the political branches. If you move, and it may be a proper move, if you move to a more general separation of powers understanding, then what comes uh, into the table, you know, potentially, if you think about it in the human rights context, is an application of the canon in a way to preserve um, international law that would operate, potentially, to limit um, actions by the political branches or the states. And so, you know, that move to more general separation of powers um, perspective could um, just involve more more issues than you know sort of this this core bit. Um, uh, in terms of non-self-executing treaties, you know, I haven't thought about this as much as custom international law, but you know, my, my instinct is that um, uh, you know sure it it would apply uh, the historical pedigree, you know, is that um, Violation of, of a treaty. And if you think about it, in terms of the war powers, it, it gives just cause for war. In terms of recognition, you know, sort of, um, you know, international right to have these treaties respected. So, um, you know, my initial thinking is that um, you know, the Restatement Third was probably right in you know sort of pulling international agreements um, into the gambit. There may be some limitations, but um, in terms of in terms of Bill's point, you know, I've really I'd, Meyer, your work on on this and you know my understanding of the historical materials is that you really do see all three threads the legislative intent uh, the separation of powers the desire to observe international law um, in and of itself and as far as the canons go I would I would add you know the the canon that uh, not only treaties but all legal instruments, you know, as articulated by, by Vittel, should not be read to violate international law unless they, unless they do so expressly. Um, you know, I, I largely agree, um, you know, with your identification of the role that these canons of interpretation have done. You know, the puzzle for me is what to do with these forms Everybody understood the law of nations would evolve, it would develop, there's no question. The problem is what happens when the law develops to a point that puts it in tension or outright conflict with other aspects of the constitutional structure, at least as some people in courts um, understand them. And there, a return to the allocation of powers approach can at least maybe establish some, some common ground around certain applications of, of the canon.
2: First in, in response to in response to bill i want, I want to agree that that 's the right question that is to say it's the, the way to approach this is not to think of of customary international law as law of the United States, but to ask to what extent does the structure of the federal union constrain the states when they operate in ways that affect the foreign relations of the united states and i 'll just say that 's the right that 's the right question as usual. Charlie Black was right with response with respect to what George said. I, 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 see the, I see the difficulty, and yeah, anytime you're suggesting that the Supreme Court of the United States try to make a situation better, there is always the danger that instead they'll behave like the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, but I think if they were to, to try to do what I'm suggesting, it would not make American conflict of laws any worse. It would, it would add maybe one more jurisdiction to, to all this, but that would at least have the benefit if they were doing this, as I would suggest, in diversity cases. That would at least have the benefit of uniformity insofar as that 51st or 52nd jurisdiction would have within it a whole lot of cases involving the foreign relations of the United States. And that, that leads to what I have to say to, to, to Kurt, which is first, of course, Congress can solve that problem. And and, I think, and that's an important part of sort of the, the the original understanding is that Congress has a lot of powers here, and there was at least a hope that they would be exercised when 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 needed and the, the other The other response is how'd they get in state court um, they, the, again the the jurisdiction of the federal courts is a large part of the solution uh, to this and and may, and maybe uh, it was just an accident of lawyering that they weren't that they weren 't in federal court. My suggestion if they were in federal court would would say look to um, the international law. And can I, can I comment on A.J.? Sure. Thank you. Um, and my, the, 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 question, the question I want to ask A.J. is wh- whether the idea that there is a separate separation of powers component here, respect by the courts for the political branches, is really independent independent of presumptions about what Congress is trying to accomplish. Because whenever a statutory construction canon applies, there is by hypothesis some action by the political branches. There is a statute, and the question is does this, does this statute represent, for example, a decision by the political branches to violate the international law obligations, say, of neutrality with the neutral rights of Denmark, for, for example. and if there was such a decision, then for the courts with a, with a presumption to keep that decision from being implemented is not for them to give respect to the political branches. It's, it's for them not to do so. So I don't, I don't see how a thumb on the scales against violations of international law can derive from anything other than substantive presumptions as opposed to the principle of doing what the political branches want, which is right, but what do they want?
0: First of all, since John is responding to AJ, I'll respond to John just briefly. Uh, he uh, he understands what a hero Bobby McFerrin is to me, and thinks that therefore, "Don't worry, be happy" is my mantra. I actually think, in spite of being a very cheerful person, I am very dark and pessimistic about this. I uh, To say what my point is: the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary aren't going to deliver which is kind of a dark point. I mean, I, I think it's, the problem isn't as bad as it could be because the states somehow aren't doing so badly, but I, I don't preclude the possibility that the states could turn on us, and since I don't believe the federal courts are going to save us, maybe there's, you know, as my son said the first time he encountered airplane turbulence, we're doomed! Um, uh, sub- substantively, on uh, Bill's actually question to A.J. I just want to interject. Uh, I was taught to read Blackstone as entirely a treatise on separation of powers. It was about protecting the judiciary and the common law from parliament. Uh, And and it's a different separation of powers problem than the one we created with our new arrangements. Uh, And that just leads me to explain why I'm a little skeptical, skeptical about originalist arguments because I think the, the new structure we created in 1789 was so radical and so misunder- not understood, maybe not misunderstood, but not understood by the framers uh, because of its departure from the uh, British background that it's not clear they really were anticipating a lot of the problems that vex us today.
1: All right, we've got Jean, Sam, and Tom. Jean? Thank you, So, my questions also go to that agent here. And I have
9: a few. So, the first question um, has to do with your idea of there seems to be a thread in the paper and in your comment that human rights violations are not the kind of things that force conflict with other nations. And I want to push back on that. I think human rights violations are taken to be around the world uh, international law violations that give rise to concern from other states that have concerns. And I think it is is quite true that if the U.S. violates international human rights law, that's not going to lead to other countries invading us. And you are making the point that a lot of this is about of concern that hostilities will arise, that the political branches arise. But I think it's also true that most law, international law the United States violates, other countries are not going to invade us. Now, if we were a much weaker country, it might very well be that human rights violations might actually lead to military intervention against the United States, uh, as might other kinds of violation of international law, and in fact you can see that in the sort of emerging idea of R2P or something like that. Uh, So, I think to the extent that the arguments that human rights law is different because it's not going to provoke um, international conflict, international invasion potentially, I don't think that that really uh, holds in a particularly strong and grounded way. So I'd just love to hear some more, more thoughts about why it's why that matters, why why it's different. My second um, question to you has to do with the separation of powers point. And your, your claim, see, for the other, um, for non-human rights law seems to be the idea behind the charming Betsy Buchanan, is We want to preserve the international law status quo, at least until the political branches act clearly. They can force conflict if they want by declaring war or something like that, they can also a violation of international law by very clearly uh, choosing to do so. But until that, we want to preserve um, the status quo. It seems to me that that holds with human rights law equally if you start to think about the treaty power, which you haven't mentioned. We have the idea you might want to preserve the status quo of complying with international law, and then the treaty power gives you more ways to opt into that. Um, Cruelly, aggressively, or to car- carve out places where you don't. Uh, by the use of reservations or something like that, that there's also um, a text-based way in which the political branches interact with human rights law that you had. I didn't notice addressed in the paper, although maybe I I missed it. And then my third question for you is a pretty technical one. It's the question of whether uh, the extent that human rights law is also part of international humanitarian law. Your argument applies to international humanitarian law or whether it's only to human rights law separate from international humanitarian law. So I'll, I'll stop there and be very, very interested to hear more. Actually,
1: I have very little to do today, but I do have to keep the cue. And I made a mistake. I mentioned Ed the first time, and I didn't mention him the second time. So uh, Ed's going to go next, and then Sam, and then Tom. Well, I, I feel bad because uh, you, uh, you've had your sign-up for the whole, the whole, uh, the whole uh, panel. So Thank
6: you. This is on and audible. So I had, uh, two questions, um, uh, one to um, AJ and the other um, to John. Um, is to, um, to AJ, uh, one of the, the, the posture of the piece as is it, is it presently stands is a little bit about how the Restatement Fourth might take on this um, question. And to a degree, it already has. Um, and uh, you may be amused to know that uh, during the discussion with the members, one of the questions we repeatedly got is, where is this language about where fairly possible coming from? Uh, this is bizarre, why do you, why do you use this language? Uh, and uh, we, uh, we had recourse Let's, uh, to explain it. But um, I, th- I was wondering also if your piece could do more with the language of the Charming Betsy, the, the part um, that refers to um, international law as it's understood in this country. Um seems to be an important qualifier there that is underexplained in a lot of uh, discussion of that uh, case. and I think you could actually um, use that um, to your to the advantage of your thesis should you so choose. Um, John, I found uh, the paper uh, very uh, uh, bracing and interesting as always, um, really uh, interesting. I, I want to make sure I understand it because if I do understand it correctly, which is a big, huge if um, um, it it may allow you to do something a little bit uh, uh, more um, the, the speculative uh, with it. Um, I understand the second material effect of the choice of law approach that you're describing as being um, that choice of law operates to displace um, another um, sovereign's um, capacity to exercise authority. It can be so employed in a federal court um, to much the same effect as um, federal common law is often thought to, to function Um, but that it um, draws uh, it in with respect to its operation obviously in in state court um, as a consequence. So this is something that operates for the application of of these similar norms, as choice of law norms within federal court, but not so much uh, within um, a state court. Um, So uh, the laws of the United States function um, uh, being eclipsed matters with respect to state court. Um, And I assume I'm correct in understanding that that means, um, that understanding would mean that um, customary international law, for example, would not function as a basis for removal um, either. Um, and if that's true, I wonder if you could, you know, possibly um, discuss in your, in your chapter as you expand it, the degree to which this might help explain one of the Bermuda Triangles of um, uh, foreign relations law, namely the lack of cases that we see in U.S. courts that are actually, as Kurt was saying, that are actually applying um, a federal common law, um, a customary international law to displace state authority. Um, that these are non-removable uh, and that they don't have uh, a similar function um, because of your choice of law approach uh, in state courts would help, I think, explain uh, one of the reasons why we might not see um, cases occurring in the abundance you might think that they would occur uh, were it to operate as a more fully-fledged form of uh, laws of the United States or uh, federal common law as it's um, substantively uh, understood. I
10: have two questions, one uh, for AJ, one for John. AJ, can you say more about whether Charming Betsy applies with respect to a non-self-executing treaty? Um, as I read, and maybe I'm misreading it, but as I read the Supreme Court decision, Medellin maybe it's wrong, but uh, said that the president couldn't act in a very compelling area. Uh, to tell the states what to do because it was a non-self-executing treaty. Maybe I'm misreading that, but that's how I read it. And if if that's true, if if it stands for a more general principle, if it's a non-self-executing treaty, then only the Congress can implement it. Um, And uh, that should be congenial to your view because it argues for a very narrow scope for for Charming Betsy. Um, But on the other hand, uh, let's assume that we've entered into a treaty that that is now viewed as non-self-executing, put aside Medellin as a, a president. Um, I'm sorry, can you hear me now? I apologize. <laughs> um, now, assume we've entered into a treaty, human rights treaty, and these are our international obligations, and the statute is truly ambiguous. I mean, these canons actually don't do that much work. I know that they're enshrined now, but I tell my students they're, they're canons with one N, not two Ns. Uh, the rules of thumb. But you know, as a rule of thumb, if you have an ambiguous statute, uh, why not, uh, you know, s- say, well, we've entered, recently entered into a treaty which the president has has a, uh, ratified on behalf of the United States, and it's a close call, but we read it that way. And I understand that, you know, maybe Congress should make the decision, but it could be compelling cases where that's not not the case. And other words, you're making a statutory interpretation ruling at the end of the day, and you're saying it's truly ambiguous you know most of the canons don't depend on rock solid constitutional law they're just sort of rules of thumb you know applied repeals are disfavored and uh, you know take a look at the at the sources of those canons so this is another canon that says you know we've entered into this treaty it's been ratified by the United States we take our obligations seriously and this is a truly ambiguous statute I mean I'm not sure it, as much as I, I don't want to positivize international law it's my own instinct keep it. And I think you have a similar instinct here, at least modern international law. But um, there might be an area here where it makes sense. So maybe you could say something about that. Um, in fact, there's a literature, I think Jean believes in this as well. Maybe may be wrong about that. But because of uh, Medellin, we ought to operationalize these doctrines more uh, so that there is you know, a scope for judicial enforcement of non-self-executing uh, treaties. I'm not sure I endorse that view. but. So it relates to this issue as well. John, I haven't read your piece. I didn't see it, but is it your view that because of the laws of the United States language of the Supremacy Clause, that there's no, judicially, there's no judicial, there's no federal common law other than justified by structural features, structural arguments? And does that also apply to the federal common law that develops as an adjunct to statutory
3: interpretation? Okay.
1: AJ, why don't you, AJ, why don't you begin again?
3: Okay. Sure. So I'll start with um, I'll start with Jean, and I mean the the premise of your question, your first question, you know, is is surely correct. The violation of a human rights treaty could generate tension. In certain instances, it could generate conflict. Here's you know here's the the puzzle to my mind. Um, And again, part of it is a is a problem if if you're trying to make sense trying to do something that aligns with, makes sense of historical understanding and practice. You know, how do you, how do you allow the past to speak to the present? So traditionally, when you think about the rights of a nation under the law of nations, it has to it sort of a, a bilateral, enforceable feel. It's a right of this country as opposed, or power of this country as opposed to a right of this country. You know, when you think about human rights violations um, in violation of customary international law. It's more of, by one citizen against its own citizens, it has more of an inchoate feel to it. So it's not, in the traditional historical way, a violation of this discrete right of this country. It's a violation of a principle that's developed in international law, but in terms of the actual damage done, it's more, um, it's more of an inchoate right, which I think makes it a little bit more difficult to deal with. But if you say, well, it shouldn't be more difficult to deal with, what's really relevant here is, is the conflict, is the tension. And in that respect, the court should avoid it by interpreting the law to accord with the international law rule. The, The translation problem, if you will, is that in resolving that conflict, you potentially invite another form of conflict, which is a good faith understanding that the application of this rule of international law is limiting the powers of um, either the United States or a state in ways that the original allocation of powers just doesn't. uh, just doesn't allow. So I think any you know full answer to this would have to negotiate those two different forms of uh, of conflict. Um, as for um, you know how the Charming Betsy canon might apply to international human rights law versus international humanitarian law, you know that's something to which you know I'll just have to I'll have to give more thought. Um, Ed, as far as the the language of the Charming Betsy goes, international law as understood in this in this country, um, I can't say that I've um, I've given that language a whole lot of thought. Um, I agree. I agree with Bill that the the Charming Betsy canon reflects much more than just that case. That case is more representative of the application of a principle than. Um, generative of it, and so we shouldn't read it as a statute. But that language certainly means something, and what does it mean? And you know, it, just off the top of my head, I mean, it could could refer, of course, to um, uh, proper statements by the political branches that these are the international obligations of the United States, um, and you know, that could sort of you know, sway the operation of of the canon. Um, but again, I'll give that I'll give that more thought. Sam, as far as um, the application of the canon to a non-self-executing treaty, it, um, it, it generates a historical puzzle that I'd have to think through. If one just goes sort of in the, in the historical mindset and says, well, okay, in the first decades following ratification, how would you treat this problem? The violation of the treaty, self-executing or non-self-executing, would have given the offended nation just cause for war. That determination's for the political branches. Courts should avoid the treaty violation when the statute's ambiguous. As for today, if you take out of the equation the war powers, if that's not a part of it, and so you're relying on a more general idea of separation of powers, or if you're relying on rights that stem from Recognition. I just think the the question is is more complicated. Um, I think it's a very good one. Go ahead,
2: John. Thanks, Ed. Yes, you have you have it right. And it's cer- it's certainly true that since what I'm suggesting depends on the jurisdiction of the federal courts, it depends on both Article Three and the statutory implementation. And so there are some probably an important category of cases that are within the article 3 jurisdiction the diversity jurisdiction are non-removable and as a and as a consequence they would have to they would have to stay in in state court until Congress does something about that because this is about the statutory jurisdiction. And one thing, they're separate questions. What can the courts do entirely on their own, given the current statutory jurisdiction, and how might Congress extend their jurisdiction? One thing I think sometimes it's easier for Congress to extend their jurisdiction because Congress then doesn't itself have to take a position on what the answer to the substantive question is. They just have to change the jur- the, jur- the jurisdictional rule. Um, in response to in response to Sam, my my approach does not rule out. Those, those forms of federal common law, and I think there are two ways in which it can arise. One, sometimes a statute may bring with it some unwritten principles that govern transactions created by the statute, and depending on what the statute means, the statute may also imply that those have the status of, that those get the status of, of federal law. Congress can certainly do that, and sometimes they, sometimes they do that, sometimes they don't. So I think that's a that's a question under the statute. something else that can happen is sometimes Congress creates a federal function and that combined with sort of the McCulloch principle and no affirmative indication by Congress that the federal function is subject to state regulation will also create the situation where, where, where there will be federal common law, of the kind that doesn't have to be preemptive, doesn't have to have the force given to it by the statute just because state law is excluded by the statute itself and then the unwritten norms can, can, can govern and state law can't interfere. For example. For example, yeah. I, uh, and and if, if, I, if, I, if I knew enough about ERISA to actually answer that question, I, I, would, I would be consulting right now. Um, I wouldn't be here, but quite possibly.
1: Paul? I don't think I have anything to ask. All right, just to uh, tell everyone on the list here, we've got Tom, myself, Austin, Shameen, I hope I'm pr- pronouncing that right, and Shamin, thank you, and Beth. I'm missing someone, let me know. So we'll do Tom, myself, and then Austin. Tom. Um,
11: as you know, I love I love these old uh, 18th and 19th century prize cases. So I enjoyed your your contribution. My question to you is is um, it's interesting what charming like when you do this exegesis of the case. It's interesting to sort of think about what the. Major, the biggest takeaway is right, and and what Marshall does is he construes the Non-Intercourse Act, which I call to my students the Chastity Belt Act. Um, but he takes a provision which, as you point out, pretty clearly, there's this very strong argument that it covers Shattuck, the one that says, you know, essentially um, any person, um, a citizen or citizen thereof, resident elsewhere, and and essentially ignores it, right? So, so as I read Charming Betsy, you have text, legislative intent, a Federalist Congress during the quasi war with Adams, egging it on. Uh, everyone's saying like essentially, yeah, this was a valid prize. And 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 Marshall says, no it wasn't, right? And so, so for me the major takeaway is the judiciary can be super aggressive and they could even be be requires some kind of clear statement rule, and and this canon is pretext for a powerful intervention in in, in with regards to 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 the judiciary into um, military actions. Now, obviously, it was somewhat clever of Marshall in his classic way because by 1804 the Federalist Congress was out, and he knew he had political cover, so there was no. Nothing wrong with it, but but I mean, it, it seems to me if, if you if you engage in this kind of like deep dive originalism, uh, I just can't see how you can take come to the takeaway that basically whatever we get from Charming Betsy, the separation of powers implication is that the judiciary should stay out and let the political branches handle things, right? So that's my question to AJ, if the rejoinder to that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna twin John and, and Paul's questions here because John, I absolutely agree with you. Um, and in fact, in my contribution to the same response to AJ's book, I say, like, look, Article Three, Article Three Six—it's absolutely clear that the laws of the United States does not include law of nations, right? But, but my question to you is sort of, where do we go if we adopt your rule, Chief Justice Harrison, right? Which is, which is, we're going to have to make calls about customary international law. We're going to have to make calls about foreign foreign law, and we're very much removed from a world in which we have like sources that everyone sort of trusts like look at norton's digest or something and it's it's and i don't know if you've been following the vitamin c case i know bill and and paul and sam and i all filed amicus briefs in there but basically we're sort of (laughs) getting to the point where sidley and austin pitches foreign countries to say oh well, we'll tell you what your law is and file a brief before the supreme court and so it seems to me like, and so this is a different implementation problem than, well, the Supreme. Can we trust the Supreme Court to do the right thing? I mean, it seems to me we're opening up an entire can of worms. Your, your approach would open up a lot of issues that that are are fraught with with difficulty because that expertise, um, not only jurisprudentially but as a practical matter, it it, it's, it doesn't exist. It's much harder for a U.S. court to figure this out. It's it's a much more difficult call than a U.S. court figuring out these choice of law issues with regards to states. And so, Paul, it's very interesting because I think that you and John are together um, and maybe I'll use Sabatino as an example. So whereas John would say, would agree with Harlan and say, look, we don't really need to look at New York law of regards to active state. We could just go to the federal level. I think you would say, I mean you you your point which I call the Kimball two-step is that is the idea that in most instances look to the content of state law to figure out what the federal law is and in most cases it's going to be serviceable which Harlan did not do in in Sabatino but 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 I think that that's the general move we make um, in 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 federal common law and I guess this is where I'm going to like Kirk channel Gary Bourne because let's see what what's happened with the train wreck of foreign recognition of recognition of foreign judgments in the states right because with the exception i think gary's right with the exception of defamation the united states the states have become i think the most permissive jurisdiction with regards to the recognition of foreign judgments default judgments doesn't matter and it's because the american corporate bar is hired by these corporations and they've been very good at at at, at, at moving this and so it seems to me that's an area in which i think gary is right, I mean, maybe maybe, maybe that's an area where we can't do the Kimball two-step, and the federal courts should step in. And I guess, are you saying that you don't think that there's any such areas? Or if there is an area, how are we to decide when when state law isn't good enough, and, and we need to to sort of come in on the second step and say the federal, the, the Supreme Court needs to, to get involved and, and, and clean this up? Because we're, we're far away from Hilton V. I.O. right now on that.
1: Well, I'm I'm next, and this is a question for anybody who cares to pay attention to it. Um, suppose I think that uniformity is important, and suppose I think that both the, the state courts and the federal courts are are doing a bad job of ensuring, you know, that uh, you know, ensuring that we're complying with international law, and and suppose I'm in Congress and I I want to deal with this problem, can I can I create some agency that has authority to, to define the law of nations for purposes of these suits and to do so as these cases arise, right? So someone files a suit as a question of international law, the agency then has 60 days to create a new rule. Uh, it either does or does not do so. If it doesn't do so, the court decides it on its own, but if it does so, the rule is, is, is law just like any regulation that's lawful would be law of, uh, of the United States. And then the we have a uniform rule, we're not reliant, reliant upon Congress, and of course there'll be perhaps disuniformity in the application of the rule, but I suspect if the agency is smart enough it can propound a very precise rule that uh, um, we'll deal with this problem of disuniformity. Is, th- is that possible uh, under our legal system? Is it inconsistent with some principle of? Federal courts. Uh, I mean, I could see for for purposes of criminal law there'd be a problem, right? Because you can't change the law after the the transaction or whatever you're talking about has occurred. But certainly, Congress changes the law all the time as to civil litigants, and and the courts uh, at least sometimes are willing to apply the new rules as long as they don't feel like they're, you know complicated rules about changing their judgment. So if I really believe in uniformity, is, is that something Congress can do? But before you answer that, we have to hear from Austin.
5: Um, I understand people disagree with Gary's uh, remedy. But the concern that he seems to identify is what he sees as a striking marginalization of international law, both public and private, in the court system. And then he has a particular sort of solution for that, which I understand people don't agree with. Do people agree that it's a concern that there's been a marginalization of public and private law for a variety of reasons? And then the second question I have, which sort of, AJ goes to you, um, less again to your solution. Uh, but do people agree that the structural limitations of the international system are somewhat baked into the, um, baked into the the Constitution, uh, John. It sort of goes to what you were pointing out with AJ. You know, is it a political separation of powers, or is it really more maybe what Gene was suggesting that the fledgling nation in the United States was concerned itself about its position and saw so respect for international law as a way to actually respect sort of territorial sovereignty to some extent by adhering to the rules of the game, and so. I guess those are my two questions. Do you agree with the diagnosis that Gary has? And then, two, uh, do you believe that the structural limitations of the international system are baked in at least into the Constitution, even if they are not uh, for- formal law? All right.
0: <laughs> well, switch over to the. Austin and uh together, sort of. Uh, which is to say I think the uh, question of whether we're at the optimal level of uniformity and respect for international law, which are two different things in a way, because not everything that we want to be uniform is governed by international law, Uh, at least so Bill and I argue, uh, 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 is different from are we doing okay? I mean, because certainly we could do better. But are we at a crisis point, which is cycling back to Tom's comment about the train wreck that is recognition of foreign judgments? Uh, and, and I think reasonable people can disagree. I, I, I don't think foreign judgments is a train wreck. Uh, you know, I mean, the renunciation of Hilton and Guillaume started in the New York Court of Appeals in the 20s you know, with a hyper-permissive a approach. And you know, in the last 100 years, the US role of the world economy has done OK. Maybe suddenly we've fallen off a cliff. I can see the case for that. But So um, I don't things, think things are so bad. And uh, it's not clear to me that uh, I, I like your reference to Kimball. It's one of my favorite cases. Uh, I, I, I don't think renouncing the Kimball 2 move is necessary there. I mean, we can contemplate what kind of bad behavior by the states requires the making up of new federal law. I will just note one of the more famous recent episodes of that was Bush versus Gore, which I'm not sure everyone sees as a great success for uh, U.S. jurisprudence.
1: All right. John.
2: In, re- in response to in response, Tom, two things first i th- i think in general an approach like mine would not add new international law cases to the dockets of all the united states courts together it would shift some from state court to federal court and not not know- not knowing enough about the comp- the comparative expertise of state courts and federal courts in that respect to really be confident about an answer i s- I suspect again this is a situation where they're not going. To, the federal courts aren't going to do any worse. There would there might be situations in which the federal courts applying an independent choice of law rule would look to international law when the state courts would not otherwise have looked to have looked to international law. And if they if if something like my proposal were adopted, and that were to happen, that would put that would put additional strain on their limited capacity to ascertain the content of international law. Yes, that's, that's, that's right. Um, in, res- in response to Psy, that's, uh, that's a great question that to some extent grows out of Sam's question, which is, okay, there is this general problem of implementing in the domestic law of the United States the international law obligations of the United States insofar as they make certain requirements for what the domestic law of the United States is. And could Congress, rather than passing the generic statute I was talking about that just says it automatically happens, give the authority to, to some federal federal agency uh, the way agencies normally regulate? And just thinking about it off the top of my head, it does, it does sound to me like the rule that says implement the international law obligations of the United States would satisfy the Supreme Court's current intelligible principle requirement. I think the hard, the harder question is, especially with respect, if, if, you, dis, if you disagree with Nick Rosenkrantz, especially with respect to customary international law, are, are there any customary international law obligations for the United States that Congress doesn't have the power to implement? Because I think it's, a, it's, a, it's necessary for the structure that you're <coughs> asking about, that Congress have substantive power pursuant to which an executive agency could then, could then regulate. I don't, I don't agree with Nick Rosenkrantz, so I think for treaties it's fine. I think there may be some gaps for customary international law. That's a question that would, requi- would require uh, some more thought. And I, I just don't know whether, whether international law is as marginalized as, as Gary Bourne suggests. My inclination is more like Paul's, but I, I, I just, I wonder about that.
3: All right, so um, Tom, with respect to your question about um, the Charming Betsy and the recitation of the principle being a pretext for a powerful intervention, um, I mean, what do, you, what do you do with what the court said and then what the court did? Um, I should probably defer to the reporters on that. How do you sort of n- navigate these waters between what the court is saying and what it's actually doing? You know, I, I, I tend to you know, think in, in restating and taking account of the law, you've got to put the most weight on what the court actually said it was doing. The court said it was doing a particular thing because it presumably felt compelled for legitimacy reasons to justify its actions in accordance with this principle. Now if the court then proceeded to do some violence to that principle, it did some violence to that principle. It pushed too hard, it was too aggressive. Um, but in terms of you know actually restating what, what were the reasons the court gave to justify its actions, even if it was a misapplication of the principle, eh, I'm, I'm comfortable with just sticking with, um, with the principle. As far as um, Austin's question goes, was you know respect for international law a concern um, uh, in, in devising the structure of the Constitution? Was it was it baked into the Constitution? Absolutely, absolutely, desperately, desperately. Um, given how the law of nations existed then, with the foresight of how the law of nations would evolve and would develop, but then we're stuck with this, I mean, as I understand it, we're stuck with this problem today that international law eventually evolved to the point where certain of its principles, territorial sovereignty, et cetera, fell in on themselves, so whereas in 1789, one nation would never question the acts of another nation taken in its own territories against its own citizens, We live in a world now where international law actually um, operates to prescribe certain conduct. So what what do you do with that? The respect for international law was baked into the structure clearly, and then it evolves in a way where its evolution conflicts with certain structural powers that the political branches have, that the states have, and how do you navigate these good faith positions where um, clearly protecting, enforcing human rights is necessary for human good in a very direct way. And at the same time, abiding by legal limitations, legal powers, has systematic implications for human good. And we end up with these very thorny questions.
1: We've got two more, and we've got got time. So uh, Shemin, and then Ben. Uh, Thanks very much. And uh,
12: I'm going to sort of make a an intervention in the spirit, less of a sort of responsive workshop and more a kind of collective brainstorming session. So uh, the first thing I I wanted to just point out is to to kind of put a pin in for tomorrow's discussion, um, a sentence, John, that you raised, the idea that um, choice of law principles allocate jurisdiction among sovereigns. And I think that that's an interesting way to think about both extraterritoriality issues that we're gonna get to and jurisdictional issues tomorrow, um, thinking of them in in a choice of law framework is something that um, I haven't recently done. So I I wanna kind of put that on the table for others to mull over. Uh, Like others, I I think I'm gonna sort of pile on the Charming Betsy discussion here a little bit uh, and and three points on that one. First, I mean, I know know you're very committed to this notion of kind of traditional versus modern international law and the strict dichotomy. Jean tried to persuade you otherwise a little bit by, by throwing international humanitarian law into the mix. And, and I might want to do the same in terms of uh, the transition period in which, of course, we saw uh, international law becoming extremely concerned with how countries treated other countries' citizens, right? Uh, and so this sort of, intermediary step almost where we had diplomatic protection and all of these arbitration cases about how countries treated other countries' citizens. Um, so I, I do think that complicates the picture. And, and again, I know it's a, a kind of picture to which you're, you're very committed, but I think um, that dichotomy is not as clear and the evolution is, is not as, uh, there's not as much discontinuity, I suppose, uh, as you suggest in, in sort of the way you describe things. Um, I mean, I, that's maybe time to. To mention also with Sam's point that uh, human rights treaties are somehow aspirational. I think one needs to differentiate, of course, between things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is aspirational, and then human rights treaties that, if countries ratify, are no longer simply aspirational right. Um, then on, on second point, reasons for complying with international law, and again, uh, AJ, I know this is sort of a point that you've. Uh, been, been sort of wedded to you and committed to you and explained for a long time so it may, may not be fruitful to push back but but is is the notion that a violation could be a cause of really the only reason for complying i mean aren't there other background principles i think you we know, impact Pacta Sunt servanda uh, as a background principle and, and you know on the one hand if one thinks of domestic law and international law as going kind of completely different spheres i can see how you know you need a way of getting from one to the other uh, but it seems to me you do that already right i mean if you say a violation being a casus belly that lets you kind of, I don't know, teletransport or jump from domestic law to international law, mm-hmm. that there must be other kind of principles that let you do that as well. That can't be the only one. So once you acknowledge that one can do that jump, uh, I, I, I would submit that there are other principles that let you do that jump and, and kind of a, some sort of, and again, I, I would need it's a question of, of for you know, research in terms of whether you call it a principle of legality or continuity or uh, something like that, but I, I think one could identify other principles that let you do that, that leap. Um, and then finally, on, uh, I think, a point that John made as well in terms of I, I would agree that the separation of powers rationale doesn't make sense really as a freestanding rationale. It kind of collapses into this idea of trying to discern legislative mm-hmm. intent. Um, and I guess, again, sort of another just factual question. I, I'm not sure, and you've read the cases you know, much more diligently than I have, that, that Charming Betsy has ever really been used, been used by courts as a way of kind of importing customary international law principles and enforcing them separate from some legislative enactment that is ambiguous and needs to be construed one way or the other. I mean, certainly advocates have uh, attempted to get courts to use the Charming Betsy canon in a more proactive way, as sort of a portal to direct enforcement of international law norms. But I'm curious whether it's actually been used that way by courts, because I can't think of any occasion in which it has. Um, my, uh, the,
13: the conversation has really moved past my comment, which was to foreground a, a disagreement that that we've that many of us have had and written about, in terms of how, of something that A.J. said I think said right in his first presentation that, of course, the framers knew that international law would evolve and change, and um, so I you know and, and and then you just really responded to it in in, in your last comment but um, but but just to footnote the fact that as has come out many of us think that the the changes in international law are not a reason to say to to change the way the rules are applied to the extent that we that that the rules were un- understood that there would be changes you know clearly they have different ramifications but you know we we're, we're talking here to a large extent about things that congress could could address and um, so it doesn't seem the the presumptions don't don't doesn't seem to me necessarily need need to change to to adapt to that. But to some extent, I think you've already responded to that.
1: All right, guys, very quickly, and then we'll get to lunch. AJ. Uh,
3: okay. Um, very quickly. So, um, Shiman, uh, what do I respond to? Um, I mean, first. All right. Just very quickly. So, I mean, as far as the reasons for complying go, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Of course, the reasons for complying with international law by a nation extend far beyond avoiding war. Um, um, they're rich, they're multifaceted, and they go to um, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the core of, uh, of, of, of human rights. You know, I think I think the, the question the question is more one of institutional competence and institutional allocation. And how do we think about that? And so many of the questions we discuss here, um, Congress could really simplify by um, owning more than it has. Although, you know, some of, the, some of these conversations have become a little bit marginal because Congress over time has, uh, has owned a fair amount of, uh, you know, of what may have been in the past customary international law. Um, yeah, I mean, I could just I'll stop there. We're close to Lunch.
0: Lunch. Well, I can't help but being uh, pessimistic, uh, and I'll, I'll respond to A.J.'s dispute. response. I, I, my colleague Jim Malone is over here. We both share an interest in tax law, and the way we teach tax law is uh, it's an optimistic story for tax lawyers in <laughs> that uh, you know disputes arise. The Supreme Court ultimately says something, and the Supreme Court always is manifestly wrong, producing another legislative response that creates new disputes, that creates new business. So it's a Greek tragic cyclical view of the world as opposed to a commitment to human progress, and and uh, I guess I want to bring
1: that to us here. Okay.